Morning, NFL fans. Welcome to another episode of Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. Finally, week one is upon us. Actually, we're towards the end of week one. We're wrapping up week one. Uh, we still have the Monday night games. If you're listening to our show on Monday, that is, we still have those 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 two games, the doubleheader on Monday. But finally, we have an episode again where we get to recap football games, which I really missed Um from from last year, I mean, I, I love going over uh, the off season stories with you guys and and having uh, conversations and references um, to articles on our website. Uh, but what I really love about the show is we get to dive into these games that I watched and and the top games of the weekend uh, and and dissect them. So let's let's start out with that Sunday night game that uh, ended uh, very shortly before our re- before our recording on Sunday night. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys hosted the New York Giants. Uh, the Giants had never lost uh, in uh, in the new stadium in Dallas uh, until Sunday night. Uh, the Cowboys defeated the Giants 36-31 to in a real wild one. Uh, a game that the Giants turned the ball over six times. That's right, six times if you can believe it. Uh, so I think the... If you wanted to sum this up in in just a sentence or two, what I take away from this game, Dallas's defense vastly improved from last year. They they made that change at defensive coordinator, uh, fired Rob Ryan, and brought in Monty Kiffin, who's seventy three years old, I believe, and he just is not that Kiffin is a better defensive coordinator than Rob Ryan. It's just a different look. It's a, it has a completely different feel. It's a different scheme. Uh, soft cover two with Monty Kiffin as opposed to uh, the three four aggressive three four with Rob Ryan. It seemed the the cover two seems to fit much better with uh, the Dallas Cowboys um, personnel on defense. Uh, so overall, that that was very good um, on defense. But I think he also the the other question you want to ask is how much of those turnovers and those mistakes that the Giants made. Were they forced by Dallas, or were they mental and physical mistakes by the New York Giants? I think probably a little bit of both. To be fair, from the from the very start, this was not a good. Uh, this was not going to be a good game for the Big Blue. Uh, Eli Manning threw seemingly a pass right to Demarcus Ware on the very first play of the game. First play from scrimmage, anyway. And uh, if you look at the replay, it just it literally looks like Eli Manning threw directly at. DeMarcus Ware, about five yards away. So I don't know how he didn't see DeMarcus Ware, but he didn't. And that led to a field goal. It was a real sloppy first half. Uh, no touchdowns until 2.55 remaining in the, the second quarter until halftime where uh, J- Jason Witten caught a pass from uh, from Tony Romo. But, uh, yeah, real sloppy first half uh, despite the fact that Dallas really dominated the the score was only 13 to 10 at halftime in favor of the Cowboys. There was only the, the Giants got one big play in that half, and it was a 70-yard uh, pass to Victor Cruz from Eli Manning. So that kept them in the game and made the score 13 to 10 at half. 
In the, in the third quarter, Barry Church recovered another fumble that uh, the Giants had. The Eli Manning ended up throwing three interceptions, so they had three fumbles as well. And what's concerning for the Giants is two of those fumbles came from David Wilson, a guy that looked like he corrected his fumbling issue from last year, actually in the home, the opener last year against the Cowboys. David Wilson fumbled once or twice, and uh, it really hurt his, to be honest, it hurt his season, and he didn't really get going or get back into the good graces of Coach Tom Coughlin until very late in the season. And this year, the Giants don't really have much of a choice. They kind of have to go with David Wilson. Uh, So they can't really put him in the doghouse and not use him because uh, they don't have a Mob Bradshaw anymore, obviously. And um, Andre Brown is out right now with an injury he could be out for a long time so david wilson's kind of the guy the the other guy they had a rushing uh besides eli manning show up in the the rushing boxes darrell scott and he had five carries for 23 yards so i don't think he's exactly the answer over david wilson chris collinsworth suggested that maybe the giants bring in a running back so we'll see uh a running a veteran running back through free agency uh, one guy that I do know that's available, he's not um, a very big name by any means or or a aging veteran either, but um, uh, Jonathan Dwyer was cut last week by the Pittsburgh Steelers, one of their average running backs uh, that they had on their roster that they didn't keep. So that, that could be a possibility. Who knows? Um, that's just one guy that I know is definitely available as of right now. Uh, but, but back to the game... Jason Witten caught another touchdown pass from Tony Romo to make the score 27-10. So it really looked like the Cowboys were pulling away and dominating the game. But Victor Cruz caught another touchdown pass late in the third quarter to pull it within 10. Then midway through the fourth quarter, it was Victor Cruz again bringing in a touchdown pass. He had three on the day. So touchdown, multiple touchdown passes for Witten and Cruz. Good day for fantasy for those guys. Uh, and that brought the score to 30-24. to 24. With two minutes left, it looked like the Giants might drive down and make a last-minute score to come back and win by a point. But Brandon Carr comes up with the big interception and returns it for a touchdown. That uh, pretty much sealed the deal. Uh, the Giants did come back and end up scoring a touchdown with 11 seconds left and the final 36-31. to 31. So other than the fact that I think Dallas's defense played very well Obviously, whenever you get six turnovers, three fumbles, and score twice on defense, that's a good day, obviously. But um, the other thing that I think was real positive for the Cowboys was that Tony Romo, for the most part, was upright the entire game. The, The one probably big issue, the biggest issue for the Dallas Cowboys last season and for the seasons in the past is their offensive line. And if they want to be a playoff team, a dominant team, they need to protect Tony Romo, keep him upright, give him time to move around in that pocket, give him a solid pocket to throw from, and he can pick defenses apart. And he showed it. He, he's shown it in his career when he has time. Um, but he doesn't often have much time. But 
But uh, on Sunday night against the Giants, he had a lot of time. He didn't get sacked until the second half, maybe the third or maybe even the fourth quarter. They did get him twice in a row. There was a hit in the second quarter that the Giants got on him. Actually, two guys hit him from both sides, hitting both sides of his ribs. So Romo got up a little bit gingerly, but for the most part, he was protected very well. And a name that I want to drop for you fans that contributed to that good protect, good protection was the rookie center for Dallas, Travis Frederick. He's out of Wisconsin. The Cowboys actually traded down in the first round to the 31st spot and uh, picked him out of Wisconsin. So he's, I think, only been one game. But it really looks like that he can anchor that line, that uh, that offensive line, and at least for one game against a team that does that wants to rush the passer, has a great defensive line, looked very good. Just one guy made a huge difference in giving Romo more time to throw the ball. And running game, eh, not great for Dallas. Demarco Murray, twenty carries, eighty-six yards, a pretty good average of four point three. Uh, so well, that'll probably improve, um, but a really good game for Dallas, I think, just just in the fact that those two big needs, the offensive line and the defense, played very well. Um, and for receiving, the big guy, Des Bryant, actually really didn't do much in this game, only caught four passes for 22 yards. He was much really a decoy as the Giants probably really focused their coverages on, on them. Uh, on 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 Bryant, and then guys like Miles Austin, ten catches, seventy-two yards. Jason Witten, who has carved the Giants apart uh, in recent years, got eighteen passes in a game last year against the Giants. He had eight catches, seventy yards, two scores. So other guys getting it done besides Des Bryant for the Giants. If there's a positive besides uh, the very negative um, fumbles from the from the, the running backs. Uh, interceptions thrown by Eli Manning. The one positive is Victor Cruz and Hakeem Nix and Ruben Randall all look really good. And if these guys can stay healthy for an entire season, the Giants are going to have a very potent passing attack. All three of those receivers, Cruz, Nix, and Randall, went over 100 yards. All of them caught exactly five passes. Cruz was the one that got all the touchdowns with three. So uh, and and two of the plays for Cruz and Knicks went over 50 yards. Cruz got a 70-yard catch. Knicks 57. So uh, and and Brandon Myers, the tight end for the Giants, in his first start for Big Blue, seven catches, 66 yards, and a touchdown. So that to me, not a lot of positives for the Giants in this game. To be honest, uh, pretty bad game, bad showing from from New York. But if, that, if there was one positive that I would point out, it would be that receiving core. Okay, let's move on to um, what I thought was the best game from Sunday afternoon, uh, probably all day Sunday. The Green Bay Packers went into candlestick in San Francisco, but the 49ers defeated Green Bay 34-28. It was a real exciting game, back and forth. Uh, San Francisco led most of the way. At one point, the Packers did take a lead, but very quickly, um, the the um, the the 49ers came back and took back the lead and held on to it for good. So, uh, real key points here. If I had to sum it up in one sentence or or two words, one player name, Anquan Bolden. 
the guy was dynamite for the 49ers. And if, if by some chance, I'm sure there was a lot of people out there, actually, you got Anquan Bolden for your fantasy team, man, are you going to clean up this year? I have four teams. First time I've ever doing more than two teams. I'm doing four. And I did not get Anquan Bolden. It was just, you know, didn't – sometimes the, there's just – you pick at certain spots and you just don't get certain players because of where you pick. Anquan Bolden didn't fall into my lap, didn't get him on any team. Man, I wish I got another shot to draft this guy. On Sunday, 13 catches for 208 yards and a touchdown. He was targeted 17 times, more by far and away more than anybody else. Uh, Vernon Davis was second in targets with nine, and Vernon Davis pulled in six catches, 98 yards, and two touchdowns. So a huge day for the 49er receivers. Those are the two guys, really, that are going to dominate uh, San Francisco's passing attack in the receiving core is Bolden and Davis. And that was the big question for the 49ers coming into the season. What are they going to be able to do in the passing attack without Michael Crabtree, without Mario Manningham? Are they going to be potent enough on offense with an aging Frank Gore to and, uh, and a still a young developing quarterback to be a Super Bowl caliber team, especially with the Seahawks really seemingly right on their heels? Well, I think that question was answered on Sunday. I know Green Bay doesn't have the best defense, hasn't had the best defense uh, or a good defense really in a while, at least statistically, but man, 208 yards in one game for Bolden, uh, that's got to be one of his top numbers, I think, for his career. So really big game for him. And it seemed like, it also seemed like anytime the 49ers needed a first down, they needed a big play. Colin Kaepernick looked for Bolden and found him. And that, to me, is huge. The fact that already in game one, Kaepernick and Bolden have this chemistry, which is going to be just gigantic for the 49ers. I always say, if you want to build a championship team, you have to be able to beat teams in more than one way. Alex Reamer on his podcast, he always talks about balance. You want to be a championship team, in my mind, Yes, you got to be balanced, but you got to be able to win games in more than one way. You got to be able to win on defense. You got to be winning, be able to win with your rushing attack. You got to be able to score with your passing attack. Maybe one game you return a punt for a touchdown and block a kick. You got to win in multiple facets of the game. And San Francisco just added a huge weapon with Anquan Bolden. They can get a lot of wins depending on that passing attack now with Bolden and Davis and not have to rely on that defense all the time. Bo, oh, by the way, is going to be, again, a top-five defense. So let's let's get a little bit more details into the game. Colin Kaepernick had a huge game in his own right. Most passing yards for a 49ers quarterback on opening day all time. And remember, Joe Montana and Steve Young played for that team. So pretty impressive numbers there. 412 passing yards, four Kaepernick, three touchdowns. More importantly, no interceptions. 49ers are a team that really doesn't make a lot of mistakes, and uh, there were there were a few mistakes uh, from each side, kind of typical for a first game uh, kind of thing. But um, overall, just very well played game, and the most exciting from Sunday. Aaron Rodgers played well. He did throw one pick, but had three touchdowns, 333 passing yards. The big thing for Green Bay is running the ball and stopping the run. We knew that we, you know, we all know that Aaron Rodgers, what he can do, and he's a Super Bowl caliber quarterback. He's an MVP type guy, 
We know what Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, I, a lot of people were talking about no Greg Jennings for the Packers this season. He didn't really play last year either. He was hurt a lot. So to me, that's really not that big of a loss. You got Nelson and Cobb that both brought in seven catches, went over 100 yards, and both got TDs. Jermichael uh, Jer- 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 Finley, five catches, 56 yards, and a touchdown by him uh, on his own. So the, the, the Green Bay Packers receivers are going to be just fine. It's can they stop the run and can they run the ball? And they did a little bit of both on Sunday against a team that wants to run and can stop the run as well. So that was promising for Green Bay. Uh, First, I'll cover Eddie Lacy. 14 carries for him, 41 yards. He did score a touchdown. I think the one thing that hurt his debut was the fumble that he lost. Uh, So that that was a a bad turnover that uh, was looked like he was starting to get going. And then uh, he he fumbled and coughed up the ball. So overall, not a terrible day. Although that average, that rushing average, is only two point nine. So it could have been better. But I think it's still promising for Eddie Lacy. Stopping the run though for for Green Bay was really good. Uh, Frank Gore did not have a particularly good game. He did score a touchdown late into the second half, but on twenty one carries, he only got forty four yards. That's an average just over two. Uh, Kendall Hunter did a little bit better, six carries, 24 yards, and they really uh, bottled up Colin Kaepernick as well, only uh, seven carries for him, 22 yards, so only 90 team rushing yards for the 49ers, very good showing for Green Bay after giving up over, I believe it was over 300 rushing yards in that playoff game last January, so really a big game uh, for them, stopping the run, which I think is really going to help them down the stretch. Um, but the one more thing from this game that actually probably not a ton of people are talking about, but is a huge, it should be a huge deal in the second quarter with about, um, a little bit more than halfway through the second quarter or actually less with more than half the time left in the second quarter, about 10, nine minutes left. The 49ers were inside the Packer 15 yard line, actually inside the 10 and on a third down. It was a pass to, I believe it was to Vernon Davis. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't a pass. It was a run. It was a run. And Colin Kaepernick ran out of bounds, short of the first down on a third down. And Clay Matthews tackles him late out of bounds, hits him late out of bounds. And it was a flag. It was a personal foul call. But actually, it started a little bit of a scrum, which was another reason why this game was so entertaining. The best game on Sunday was because... You can really tell that these teams do not like each other. Uh, Green Bay wanted to come out and prove that they were tough, that they could stop the run and run the ball against a good defense. And the 49ers, they're kind of the big the big boys on the block. With Jim Harbaugh and his attitude, they want they don't want to uh, take anybody's crap. So Clay Matthews knocks over Colin Kaepernick late, kind of a, starts a scrum. 49ers end up retaliating, offsetting penalties, two per, a personal foul on each team. The refs say replay third down. On third down, the 49ers complete a 10-yard pass to Anquan Bolden. Touchdown. The 49ers go up 14-7. That is actually the incorrect call. In that case, as it was, as, as I understand it, and how it was explained on TV while I was watching the game, two offsetting penalties on third down 
you lose the down. It should have been fourth down. And the 49ers should have been forced to either go for it on fourth down or kick it, kick the field goal. And because it happened so early in the game and it was and it was closely contested, that completely changed the game. 49ers wouldn't go up 14-7. It would be 10-7. And then Green Bay might go into halftime with the lead up 14-10. And then the, the rest of the game is completely different. And, you know, we the final score ended up being 34-28. So Green Bay didn't lose by four points. But still, it would have changed the whole complexion of the game and could quite possibly helped Green Bay win. So it's kind of a shame that uh, the referees got that call wrong. But we'll see in the next few days if if uh, the NFL says anything about admitting it, admitting getting that wrong or anything like that. Uh, I'm I am curious to to uh, keep my my ears open for anything along those lines. All right, so we covered uh, two games here in the first segment. We're going to take a break and then we'll come back with Peyton Manning's record-breaking night. Up in the autumn branches. Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. Don't forget, you can tweet at me, D-M-H-O-L-C-O-M-B. You can also send me an email at holcombmdavid at gmail.com. So let's go to another uh, set of games from uh, Sunday. Actually, uh, the first game we'll cover now, and the second segment will be is from Thursday. Let's cover a Let's talk about the Broncos and Ravens. This was a really interesting game uh, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, uh, the Ravens opening up uh, their title defense on the road, which was to the dismay of several people, which I'll um, talk about actually later on in the show. But uh, playing uh, playing in Denver, the Broncos hosting the Ravens, in a rematch of the AFC uh, Divisional Playoffs from last year, so that was a real exciting game and kind of, I don't want to say predictable because for a while, actually in, through halftime, it looked like uh, Baltimore might pull out a, the, pull out a win in, in Denver, a real tough place to play and against a tough opponent. But uh, Denver ended up coming back real strong and dominated the second half and really uh, pretty much embarrassed Baltimore. Uh, if I if I could use that that term, but like I said, Baltimore had a lead at halftime, seventeen to fourteen, and probably tricked several fans into thinking that they were into this game and they had a chance of winning. Myself included, I actually thought, "Wow, Baltimore looks good. They have a chance of winning a tough game on the road." But it really it fell all apart, and you can see why um, on offense. Baltimore really had nothing going, even in the first half. You have to remember that their second touchdown came because of a turnover that the special teams got, and it wasn't even a, like a good turnover that they forced. It was a mistake by Wes Welker. He dropped the punt and uh, gave the uh, Ravens the ball inside their own the inside the Broncos five yard line to set up a touchdown. So that was you know one of the the big scores and. Um, Baltimore, other than that, really only had one 
good offensive series in the first half that scored the touchdown that started off the game. For Denver, right off the bat, Peyton Manning was throwing to their to his tight end, Julius Thomas. 24-yard touchdown pass in the second quarter, and then later on in the quarter, a 23-yard touchdown pass, almost from the same distance away. Another one to Julius Thomas. I think uh, coming away from this game, you can say two things about the tight ends. Baltimore can't cover them, and with the injury to Dennis Pitta, Joe Flacco doesn't have a tight end to throw to, and that's really big for Baltimore. Not having, I think, not having a tight end to throw to is even bigger than not being able to cover the other team's tight end, because so much of what Baltimore wants to do goes through their tight end. Tight end, Ray Rice, and Airquan Bolden. That's what Baltimore's offense was last year through the air. They still got Ray Rice, but Anquan Bolden is gone. We already talked about him having a massive day in San Francisco. And without Dennis Pitta, they really have no quality tight end. Ed Dixon, I mean, they want him to be that guy, but he didn't show that on Thursday that he could be the guy. Only one catch for 13 yards, so not very good. Uh, Dallas Clark actually played more. He had seven catches for 87 yards, was targeted 12 times, but he had a very, uh, actually a very important drop in the, late in the in the first half, which uh, actually I guess you could say that was a good drive for the Ravens other than their first drive that scored. They uh, were driving inside. They were maybe as close to the, uh, to the 10-yard line as Denver again, Late in the first half, and Dallas Clark drops a key third down ball, and uh, Baltimore has to settle for a field goal, only goes up 17-14 going into half, and that was the last time they had the lead. So that was a key drop in the game. Uh, But the the game turned in the second half, actually, when there was a drop by Wes Welker, at least a ball that he did not catch. The referees ruled it a catch, and John Harbaugh elected not to challenge that was a third down conversion. On the very next play, Denver scores. A long uh, pass play from, uh, I believe it was Andre Caldwell, 28 yards away. Touchdown. Denver takes the lead 21-17. Doesn't give it up. So I think that was that was the turning point of the game right there. Could have changed anything. Another thing with the referees. But I think the bigger story... It's not just the referees missing the call, but John Harbaugh not challenging that play. Don't know if maybe he didn't hear it from from the booth or from his coaches upstairs, whether he should challenge it or in time or not. Uh, maybe they thought that he caught it. Not sure, but it's pretty clear on the replay that I saw that uh, Wes Walker did not catch that ball. So um, Denver went on to score several more times. There was actually a play that was quite embarrassing for Denver where uh, they picked off a pass that was so telegraphed. Baltimore going for it on fourth down, tried to give a throw it to Ray Rice on the outside on that out route, completely telegraphed. I knew it was coming, so I'm sure Denver knew it was coming. But Denver's defender, Danny Travanto, had a big game on Thursday, played very well. But intercepted that pass, returned it all the way to the one-yard line where he just prematurely celebrates, drops the ball before he's in the end zone. It's a fumble, goes out of bounds, and it's a touchback. 
that could have put the game away. Now, Denver ended up winning anyway, so it's not a huge deal. But come on, man. <laughs> not uh, exactly how you want to celebrate. De- uh, Baltimore made a tiny little comeback, ended up scoring on the next uh, possession and, and the, the following one. But uh, Denver still won handedly, 49-27. to The most points the Ravens had ever given up in franchise history. 49 points. Franchise only goes back to 1995. Remember, uh, all previous records with the Browns still belong to the Browns. They didn't transfer over to the Baltimore Ravens. So essentially, they're an expansion team that started in 1995. But still, almost 20 years, the most points they've ever given up were last Thursday night, 49 uh, 49 points. And they also gave up the most touchdown passes in one game in franchise history. How do I know that? Well, Peyton Manning was the first quarterback since 1969 to throw for seven touchdowns in one game. Unbelievable. Seven touchdowns, no picks, 462 yards, 27 completions on 42 attempts. Just a career night. Unbelievable. He's on pace for like 200 touchdowns on the season. Just incredible numbers from Peyton. And next week, we actually get to see Peyton take on little brother Eli in New York, uh, who the brothers combined for 11 touchdowns thrown this weekend. So quite a big number. We'll probably see quite a few more touchdowns in that game. A few other quick points to, uh, to, to say before we wrap up this game. Going back to Baltimore and its receiving core, I wanted to mention Torrey Smith. Big question marks around him, I think. I like him. I think he's a good receiver. He's a speed guy. He's really fast. But can he be that number one receiver? Can he be the go-to guy that Joe Flacco relies on? We saw that in Anquan Bolden. Today, or on Sunday, we saw it. And we saw it all last year. Can Torrey Smith fill that role, especially with no uh, Dennis Pitta in the lineup right now? We'll see. He's always been a speedster. He hasn't been a possession uh, receiver, but he's got to be more of a possession receiver, go-to guy on third downs. Didn't play that badly on Thursday, though. Four catches, 92 yards on the day, so pretty solid there. And for Denver, like we mentioned, obviously the offense is is incredible, possibly the greatest or best offense in the league uh, this season. But there are all kinds of question marks. How are they going to play without Von Miller? Elvis Dumerville is gone. What are they going to do to rush the passer? Well, they got some pressure on, on Flacco, and they played very well. They ended up giving up you know, 27 points, but still, uh, they had a very good game. And I think uh, there, there's, there's some decent teams in the AFC. Now, remember, as of this podcast, we haven't seen Houston. I think Houston could be a very good team. New England... Had a rocky, rocky start, but they're still good. Doesn't look like anybody in the AFC North is going to really compete for the Super Bowl. But um, Denver, even without Von Miller and Elvis Dumerville to start the season, Von Miller coming back, obviously not Elvis Dumerville on the Ravens now. Even without those guys, I think Denver is the favorite in the AFC. And they proved that on Thursday with their great defense. Right, we're going to cover one other game in this segment. The We didn't cover a game from 1 o'clock. There were a lot of games at 1 o'clock this week. But the one that I picked actually was a game that I didn't get to watch. 
the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints. To me, the number one game on at 1 o'clock. I wish they would have showed it in my area so I could see it. But uh, they showed the Bills and Patriots on CBS and then the Jets and uh, Bucks on Fox where I live. So didn't get to watch it. Very good game, though, from the looks of it. Didn't score quite as many points as I would have expected from uh, the Saints and Falcons on the on the turf, thought they would go for a lot more yards and scoring, but the Saints ended up winning 23-17. to Just want to quickly say how important Sean Payton is for the Saints, and he and he's going to prove it this season. Drew Brees is back. Um, well, I mean, he didn't go anywhere, but Drew Brees is back, paired with Sean Payton, and I think they're going to just be better than ever with uh, the offensive pieces that they have. And you know what I think is really important to point out? To start the game, the Saints won the coin toss and elected to defer. Which, if you remember, the Saints' defense last year was atrocious. Gave up a record 7,042 yards. But they elected to score first, or elected to, uh, to play defense first. I think that just instills a little bit of confidence in that in that um on on that team on that defense. So I think that's really important and something that Sean Payton knew about and already I think the the Saints are feeling Sean Payton's impact on the team and I picked the Saints to actually be the I can't even remember if I picked them. I picked them to get a bye. I know I picked them to win the NFC South. I picked them to get a bye, and I really like the Falcons. So after I made that pick, I was like, eh, Falcons are good. They're going to be a good team. But the Saints pulling through for me in a big way. And that defense making a stop at the end of the game to keep uh, Matt Ryan out of the end zone and give New Orleans a much-needed win to start the season. So, like I said, there was a lot of other great action from uh, from Sunday. New England pulled out a win over Buffalo, 23-21. Chicago came back and defeated the Bengals at home, 24-21. Miami defeated Cleveland, Ryan Tannehill. Not a great start uh, to the season. Expected more from him. Brian Hartline still his go-to guy, though. They won 23-10. Detroit-Minnesota, a seesaw game. The Lions end up winning 34-24. Indianapolis edges out Oakland 21-17. The Jets come from behind and are helped out by a penalty late to beat Tampa Bay 18-17. We had a real snoozer at Heinz Field. Pittsburgh doesn't score a touchdown or doesn't score on offense until uh, less than two minutes left in the game. They lose to Tennessee 16-9. Seattle pulls out and avoids uh, an early upset against Carolina. They won 12-7. Kansas City looked impressive. Alex Smith in his first start there. They beat Jacksonville 28-2. St. Louis. If anybody out there drafted Jared Cook, you can join the club. I drafted him on like three or four of my leagues. Had a huge day, over 100 yards, two touchdowns for the tight end for the Rams, and they beat the Cardinals 27-24. to By the way, Larry Fitzgerald's back too for fantasy purposes. Uh, that wraps up Sunday's action. Like I said, Monday, Philadelphia will be playing Washington, and then the late night game on Monday is Houston at San Diego. We're going to take a break, and then we'll come back with the 
fourth and long segment. It was born to live a day, now it flies up from your hand. It's beautiful, it's the one they call your ever-loving man. And we're back here on Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle, your host Dave Holcomb. This is our uh, fourth and long segment now, where I say a statement, and I'm either going to agree and go for it on fourth and long, or disagree and punt it away. So we're going to start out with uh, the one o'clock game that I ended up watching. The Pittsburgh Steelers uh, hosted the Tennessee Titans, and uh, neither team really shined in this game. Titans kind of just made less mistakes and ended up winning. Uh, not to take away from what Tennessee did, uh, I don't mean to do that. They they played better than than Pittsburgh. They did end up establishing a little bit of a running game. They got over 100 yards on the ground, not from one player, but as a team. And uh, Pittsburgh, way too many mistakes. Two turnovers, didn't get any turnovers themselves. Uh, interception from that Roethlisberger threw. Turnover inside the five-yard line when they're going in for a score. Penalties. More injuries, and uh, the bottom line, my my statement, the Pittsburgh Steelers are in trouble. Plain and simple. Now, all right, it's one game, okay? It's week one. And I, I feel like that would be an ESPN question. Are the Steelers in trouble after one game? Look, I mean, you you got to have to take the first week with a grain of salt. It's just... But um, that being said, this is a team that we've talked about on previous episodes. I've picked them to make the playoffs. This is a team that was 0-4 in preseason. They're now 0-5 in 2013. It's just not looking very promising. So I'm going to have to agree with that statement and say that they are. They are in trouble and already... I'm regretting uh, a playoff prediction that uh, Pittsburgh just – there's a lot of things wrong with the team in the way that it's – that they're going right now. But to for time restraints, I'm not going to go into all of them. The one thing that I do think is wrong with the Steelers, why they are not as successful last year and this year as they've been in the past – they have no running game. Now, I know they. there were years when they didn't have much of a running game and they went to the Super Bowl, but um, they really have no running game right now. And not only do they not have a running back that they can count on to get carries from, but the running backs they have cough up the ball continuously. Isaac Redmond. Two fumbles on Sunday. One of them he lost, but just continues to make mistakes, put the defense in bad situations with short fields. And the defense themselves aren't getting any turnovers, so that is a problem. But if, if it's very basic, and it's very fundamental. Uh, um, if you break down football, it's about field position. And for Pittsburgh, their opponent, their opponents are getting good field position because they continue to turn the ball over. And the Steelers do not get good field position because their defense does not get any turnovers. 
Now, there's other things that contribute to good field position, such as special teams, which Pittsburgh, not particularly good at either. Their punter looks better this year. They have a new punter from New England that uh, the Patriots cut. He helped them out a lot on Sunday, kept them, to be honest, kept them in the game. But Pittsburgh, it could be a, it could be a long season for them. The, their fans are not used to losing. They're not even used to finishing 8-8. Eight and eight. And this is a team, the way they played on Sunday, I think most Steelers would be happy with 8-8 eight and eight after the performance that they had against Tennessee. And, oh, by the way, to make it even worse for Pittsburgh, they're all pro center, Marquise Pouncey, probably out for the season. Tours ACL and MCL. He's not officially on IR. Pittsburgh <laughs> seems to be building a reputation for, for, for uh, not counting out players such as Heath Miller didn't get ruled out until very early on Sunday for Sunday's game, even though he tore his ACL just about eight months early or earlier. Le'Veon Bell is already out of a walking boot and projected to come back pretty quick, probably quicker than he actually can come back or will come back. And uh, Pouncey, more than likely, torn ACL. Maybe he makes it back for the playoffs if they're in the playoffs. Maybe he plays in like the Super Bowl in February. That would be, what, five months away. But still, five months? ACL and MCL tear? Very unlikely. Very, very unlikely. All right, let's go to our second statement. I've ripped those Steelers apart enough. EJ Manuel comes very close to getting his first NFL win against, who else? The New England Patriots. But the New England pulls out the win 23-21. But my statement, EJ Manuel is for real. Now, I guess I'm really uh, making my statements very plain and simple today. Look, it's only one game. Again, kind of, it's kind of similar to the Steelers thing. It's tough to, to gauge in one game. But check out what he did against New England. 18 for 27, 150 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. That, to me, is key. No picks. And I think what I really like about Manuel, and I've got to see parts of the Bills-Patriots game, he seems to have a lot of poise. And he seems to be a young guy that is not afraid of the spotlight, not afraid of the big stage. And and works hard. He he seems like a hard worker. I think for me, I kind of get EJ Manuel mixed up with Geno Smith. Maybe just because they're both young quarterbacks in the NFL in the same draft class that uh, like to run and are decent throwers. Both go to schools that I didn't really particularly care for. West Virginia and Florida State. Uh, so to me, I guess I kind of maybe mix them up a little bit or, or kind of blame Manuel because he was picked way too early in lots of people's opinions. But the guy can play. The guy can play. I will give Buffalo credit for that, for picking him, because the guy looks like he can play and he's a positive influence in the locker room, which Geno Smith probably can't say that about. So is Manuel for real? I mean, come back and ask me in December. But... Very promising in his first start. Okay, for the last statement, we're going to go back to that Ravens and Broncos game that took place 
in Denver. Normally, Super Bowl champions open up at home. But this season, on the last Thursday, September 5th, the Baltimore Orioles had a home game scheduled in Baltimore. Obviously, that's where they play their home games. And um, the Ravens and Orioles, the two birds, share the same nest. They share the same parking lots. Not actually the same stadium, but the same parking lots. And to avoid gridlock, there's no way with parking and traffic that a city like Baltimore could have a uh, baseball game and a football game at the same time. It's true in a lot of different places. You wouldn't be able to do it in Pittsburgh. Very similar scenario where the football and baseball stadium share parking lots. Could not have even on Sundays in August where the Pirates are playing and the Steelers have a preseason game. It's it's tough in in that city. So they could never have a regular season game and um, a regular season football game and a, and a baseball game at the same time. It's just it's impossible. Even place like like Dallas, the the Texas Rangers play right next to where the Cowboys play. Yes, there's more space in that area, but I highly doubt that they would schedule the Rangers and Cowboys for the same time. So it's not like Baltimore is the only city that has this problem, first of all. So I guess I should get to my statement. My statement is... The NFL should have forced MLB baseball, the Major League Baseball, to move the Orioles game. And I say, absolutely not. I'm punting this away. I know that Alex Reamer talked about it on his on his show, how it was outrageous that the Ravens didn't get to open up at home. Bill Enright was in a, a frenzy because he doesn't like baseball. On uh, FN Radio, he talked about how uh, the Orioles and uh, White Sox, very boring game. Why can't that be moved to the afternoon? Okay, first of all, moving, <laughs> saying baseball was boring is not really a fair reason to move the baseball game. The baseball schedule came out first. The NFL doesn't have rights to schedule games whenever they want. There are three other professional sports leagues in the United States. And when their schedules are scheduled, they don't have to change it because the NFL says, oh, we make more money. Oh, we have less games. Oh, it's our opening night. None of those, in my mind, are good reasons for baseball to change their game. There's 162 baseball games. I get it. There's only 16 football games. Does Baltimore lose a home game in this scenario? No, they just open up on the road. In the end, who really cares? Yeah, I mean, if the NFL purposely scheduled a Super Bowl champion on the road, I'd probably be upset. I'd probably talk about it on the show and say that was wrong. But there was a scheduling conflict. Why didn't they move Baltimore to Sunday and let them open up at home on Sunday? There wouldn't have been a conflict then with the Orioles. The NFL elected it wasn't important enough for Baltimore to open up at home as Super Bowl champs. It was more important to get them in the primetime slot on the road. So to me, they lost all right to move that game that the Orioles played. The Orioles had a four-game series against the White Sox all weekend. And the White Sox 
flew in on, if I'm correct, they flew in on Thursday or, or it was either wet, late Wednesday night or on thurs, Thursday morning, whatever, to play a, a 1 o'clock game just so that the Ravens can have put up a banner that they can just put up the following week? Come on. The NFL doesn't rule the world. The NFL can't force other leagues to make schedule changes. And my final point, although it might be a little bit different now, someone that is under the age of, say, 20 or 25 in Baltimore might say, uh, say differently, but Baltimore is a baseball city. They like their Orioles more than their Ravens. In general, I'm speaking in stereotypes. Yes, the Ravens just won the world. Uh, the, the Ravens just won the Super Bowl. The Orioles, the Orioles have not been relevant except for last year. Had not been relevant since 1997. The Orioles had not won a World Series since the 70s, or excuse me, since the 80s. In general, if you ask a, a Boston fan who their favorite team is, it's going to be the Red Sox. In Pittsburgh, it would be the Steelers. In Los Angeles, it would probably be the Lakers. That's just the way it goes. It doesn't mean that the Ravens don't have good fans. They do. But Baltimore is a baseball first city. They're an Orioles first city. In my opinion, they still are. They've always been that way. Remember, the Ravens are an expansion team. They were just, they were, they've only been around since 1995. So for all those reasons that I just explained... I am happy that Thursday's game was in Denver and not in Baltimore, and they forced the Orioles to change their schedule. That's the end of our fourth and long segment. We're going to take one more break. Here's my favorite song from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and then we'll be back to wrap up today's show. So sad on the blood rush to your feet To think that everything you do today Tomorrow is obsolete Technology and women And little children too Don't it make you feel blue? Don't it make you feel blue? For more news from nowhere Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts and uh, live shows on Football Nation. There's FN Radio every Tuesday, Thursday from 12 to 2 live, and then you can download it in the iTunes Store, and you can also download this show in the iTunes Store. And Alex Reamer's podcast, FN Today, actually just aired its last episode, possibly uh, possibly its last episode uh uh, Alex Reamer explained he's going on hiatus. He's uh, has got a lot of other stuff going on in his life, covering uh, other things for um, other stations and other other uh, media outlets, doing all kinds of radio stuff. So unfortunately, uh, Alex will not be on uh, Football Nation regularly uh, for for a while. I guess uh, we're going to miss him a lot. Uh, but don't forget to uh, definitely check out his last episode from last week. Um, where he makes all of his playoff predictions, so I'm I'm sure he would love to uh, for to get as many listens on that uh, episode as possible, and uh, it, for uh, people to leave comments on possibly his last uh, show ever on on Football Nation. Last thing I want to say uh, on Wednesday, it'll be the 12th anniversary for, of 
the 9-11 attacks in New York City and in Washington, D.C., and don't forget the, the plane that crashed in the middle of Pennsylvania as well. So I just wanted to uh, commemorate the, the lives lost on that very tragic day in American history, and I will be wearing my um, American flag shirt that day um, to honor them. And uh, as we leave the show today, we will also be playing uh, a, a song that I played last year on the same the same week, uh, September 11th week last season, with uh, a song by Bruce Springsteen uh, from his album entitled "The Rising." The last song on that album is called uh, "My City in Ruins." It didn't originally, uh, in, in, it wasn't originally intended to be written about New York City on September 11th, but it is kind of taken on that meaning. It's taken on several meanings. It also kind of has some meaning to people in New Orleans um, from the Hurricane Katrina attacks. Well, not attack, Hurricane Katrina tragedy, I should say. But it's a very nice song that I think about. um, I think about September 11th when I hear it. And um, it's a very uplifting song, but also brings a tear to your eye. So... We will leave that episode on that song today. The boarded up windows, the empty streets.